The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I don't know. Perhaps you don't, but you could make an excellent guess. My guess might be excellent or it might be crummy, but Mrs. Spade didn't raise any children dippy enough to make guesses in front of a district attorney and an assistant district attorney and a stenographer. Why shouldn't you if you have nothing to conceal? Everybody has something to conceal. I'm a sworn officer of the law 24 hours a day, and neither formality nor informality justifies you withholding evidence of crime from me, except, of course, on constitutional grounds. Now, both you and the police have as much as accused me of being mixed up in the other night's murders. Well, I've had trouble with both of you before. And as far as I can see, my best chance of clearing myself of the trouble you're trying to make for me is by bringing in the murderers all tied up. And the only chance I've got of catching them and tying them up and bringing them in is by staying as far away as possible from you and the police because you'd only gum up the works. You getting this all right, son, or am I going too fast for you? No, sir. I'm getting it all right. Good work. Now, if you want to go to the board and tell them I'm obstructing justice and ask them to revoke my license, hop to it. You tried it once before and didn't get you anything but a good laugh all around. Now look here. And I don't want any more of these informal talks. I've nothing to say to you or the police. And I'm tired of being called things by every crackpot on the city payroll. So if you want to see me, pinch me or subpoena me or something, and I'll come down with my lawyer. I'll see you at the inquest, maybe. That's Humphrey Bogart as Detective Sam Spade in the classic 1941 film, The Maltese Falcon. That film was based on a novel by Dashiell Hammett, who, along with other titans of the genre like Raymond Chandler and James M. Kane, ushered in an unforgettable period in American literature. The era of the hard-boiled crime novel and its kissing cousin, film noir. We'll be joined today by a man who loved those stories so much he started a publishing line, Hardcase Crime, which has resurrected the style and format of classic pulp fiction crime novels with a mix of reverence, affection, nostalgia, and modern-day sensibilities. So pour yourself some black coffee and settle into your best private eye office chair. We're looking at classic crime fiction with Charles Ardai. Today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. What a fantastic episode today. My guest, Charles Ardai, is the perfect guest for a show like this. Hard Case Crime. If you haven't seen these books, then... Get thee to a bookstore and check them out or go online. These are fast-paced books with a brooding hero on page one, a body on page two, and a chase scene after that. I love these books. I love their covers with the dames and the guns. Sometimes the dames are in distress. Sometimes they're the ones presenting the danger. And I love the titles, Gunwork and Baby Mall (laughs) and Blood on the Mink. Ed McBain's book, So Nude, So Dead, or Stop This Man. (laughs) The term pulp fiction originally referred to magazines. takes its name from the cheapness of the paper, literally the wood pulp that that formed the paper, and it included science fiction and westerns and all kinds of thrill-a-minute adventure stories. Officially, the pulp fiction era ran from 1896 to the 1950s, more or less. 
It includes classic authors like Edgar Rice Burroughs, author of the Tarzan books, and many, many others as well. We'd never be able to list all the authors who got their start in these magazines, which were hugely successful. It's estimated that there were 150 pulp magazines, and at their peak, the top magazines were selling a million copies per issue. That is a lot of fiction being read by a lot of people. A lot of literature grew out of this fiction. Authors like Stephen King and Kurt Vonnegut were raised on it. Superhero comics grew out of it. What we're going to focus on today is a particular offshoot, the crime fiction novel. So that's coming up. You'll hear our interview with Charles Ardai, where he talks about how he became involved with bringing these back to life. It's a strange feeling to see a hard case crime book or hold one in your hand. It's like holding a replica of a Roman coin or Confederate money or something like that. It feels old and new both at once. Your mind thinks, okay, I see the painted cover. I see the font. I see the title. This must be from the 1940s. But the book itself feels so new and vivid and fresh. And then you realize that it is new. The packaging is brand new, but the feel of it carries with it the classic feel of another era. J.K. Rowling is a fan of these books, these covers. Author Mickey Spillane said these books made him remember the good old days. Mickey Spillane came out of World War II looking for a little extra cash, so he wrote a novel. It took him 19 days. It was called I, the Jury, and it starred a tough guy named Mike Hammer. It sold six and a half million copies. A phenomenon was born. So let's talk to Charles Ardai about the phenomenon and where it has taken us today. It's a fun interview. You'll hear that the, <laughs> you'll hear that the history of literature interns who wrote my surprise bonus question <laughs> really got carried away this time. I mean, they really, really got carried away. In fact, I might have to have a talk with some of them. To, oh, excuse me. Maybe that's one of them now coming to see how Jack is doing. Oh. Well, hello. Hello. This is Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar, how are you? It sounds... That sound you hear. Ah. Bricks. Bricks. Bricks being placed one by one in a wall not six inches from my person. Oh, dear. Edgar's in trouble. Bricks set by my enemy, Fortunato. I am to be entombed, it seems... A pity, really. I have so much more to give. If only my saviour, that noble whelp Jack Wilson, would come to my rescue. He's outside of Fortunato's castle, attempting to bribe the footman. Mm. But I fear he lacks sufficient funds. That is indeed true. <sighs> oh, won't you help him? You hard-hearted book lover. Oh, that's a Won't you harsh. help okay. him and me? Oh, boy. Edgar. Poor Edgar. How appropriate that he's chosen to be here for this episode. I think he wanted us to remember that he himself played a huge role in the development of crime fiction with his Auguste Dupin stories. Poe would have thrived in the 50s, I think, in the Pulp Fiction era, although... He was so prickly and unconventional, he might have rejected them all as well. It's an interesting 
thought experiment. Would Edgar Allan Poe have liked Pulp Fiction? It's hard to say. But let's talk about his current dilemma. He needs some funds. If you'd like to help out his noble whelp, Jack Wilson, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature and sign up for as much or as little as you can throw our way. There's a spot on there to donate a Maltese Falcon, which I will then sell to Peter Lorre for $5,000. I'm kidding, of course. I'll slap Peter Lorre and he'll take it. All right, here we go. Charles Ardai an author and the founder and editor of Hard Case Crime, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app, or Wondery Kids Plus, in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is special guest Charles Ardai, an American writer and entrepreneur. Charles is the founder and editor of Hard Case Crime, which has published more than 100 pulp-style crime novels in the last 15 years. Charles Ardai, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So this is our second crack at this. Unfortunately, we had some technical issues with the first interview. Hopefully those are sorted out now. But thank you again for coming back a second time. Oh, delighted to. And I have prepared a fresh set of questions. So hopefully that will keep you from having deja vu as you listen to yourself give answers here. (laughs) That sounds great to me. So what can I tell you about Hard Case Crime? Okay, well, let's start with you. I'm curious as to when you started reading Pulp Fiction. Oh, God. You know, I was a kid reading mysteries. Of course, I started, like everyone else, with things like Hardy Boys and Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes was published in The Strand originally, the short stories. Uh, Studying Scarlet was the first, I believe. And uh, Hardy Boys are very much in the pulp tradition as well. So while neither of them qualifies as pulp fiction, it's not what people mean, it has some ancestral connection. Yeah. Um, then at some point, I started reading a magazine called Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, where I wound up working after a while. But uh, Ellery Queen was first published in 1941 and was intended to be a sort of higher-end, ritzier version of Pulp Fiction. So yeah. it didn't have lurid, mostly, didn't have lurid cover paintings. Uh, and it, it uh, pulled stories from a very high caliber of author, 
So their debut issue had Dashiell Hammett, and Agatha mm. Christie, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I read a ton of Ellery Queen, and that was very much in the spirit of Pulp Fiction, even if the stories were slightly less violent, slightly less scandalous, and so on. Yeah. Uh, so, so I would say starting as a kid, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and then, of course, in, in later years, I discovered writers like Lawrence Block, Ed McBain, uh, James M. Cain, and Raymond Chandler, who all were pulp writers. Yeah. And were you seeing these like uh, were they for sale when you were starting to discover them or were you seeing them in libraries and and rummage sales and that kind of thing? You know, it, it depends on what you mean. So, for instance, Kane has been in print nonstop since uh, he, he began. So if you want to mm. read The Postman Always Rings Twice or Double Indemnity, you can get those in editions going back 50 years. Uh, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe books, same thing. Dashiell Hammett. These are the authors that have become canonical and certainly Sherlock Holmes. On the other hand, writers like um, Day Keen, Gil Brewer, Richard Prather, they were a big deal insofar as they were ever a big deal. They were a big deal in the 40s and 50s and then fell out of print. So if you wanted to read their short stories or their novels, you had to haunt uh, used bookstores or yard sales, garage sales, uh, estate sales. And I did all of those things. Now, eventually the Internet came and that was the salvation for all of us because mm. you could go to eBay. Mm. And you could type in the name of any publication, uh, gold metal paperback <laughs> or black mass pulp, right. and get what you wanted. But once upon a time, you know, when I was a young reader, there was no internet and there was no eBay. And so you had to go around to places that had books and magazines and rifle through cardboard boxes and smell the stink of musty sellers. And uh, that was part of the fun, tracking this stuff down. Yeah. And I just want to make clear that even though I think a lot of people discover these when they're maybe in their adolescence or, or teenage years, these were, I mean, at the time, these were purchased by a lot of um, commuting men. And and uh, I'm, I'm guessing they were, some of them were book of the month club type things. They really were, they were bought by adults too. That's, that's right. These were typically in wire racks at uh, drugstores, uh, sold at truck stops and luncheonettes. And they were in uh, train stations, as you said, at newsstands. And the buyers were overwhelmingly uh, grown-ups, although if you went to a candy store in Brooklyn, like the one run by Isaac Asimov's father, uh, Asimov, as a teenager, would pull the pulps off the rack, read them carefully, put them back so somebody else could buy them. So I'm sure there were teenagers who did, and some of them then grew up to become writers of this sort of fiction. But they weren't intended for kids. And you can tell this in part because there are uh, child protagonists. There aren't teenage protagonists for the mm. most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's quite a lot of sex and violence, which maybe we have a high tolerance for today. Uh, but in the 40s and 50s, that was the province of uh, adult readers, not teenagers, uh, officially anyway, and uh, male readers, not female readers. So there, there was definitely a sort of entrenched sexism to, to the field. Uh, and there was definitely an adult bias. And, there... uh, and I think, go ahead. I was going to say, and the genre, uh, we kind of associate it now with crime novels, but there was science fiction and there were other, oh, yeah. uh, it was a wide variety. A- absolutely. Right? Very specialized, too. You had nurse romances, for example. You mm-hmm. had not just Westerns, but certain types of Westerns. You had mm-hmm. the singing cowboy Western and, and so on. Uh, so there were very specialized tastes. There were not only war stories, but specifically uh airplane war stories like you only want the air force and you have a magazine just for that uh and that was true of the characters too so you had the shadow uh, pulp magazine so you if you want to read a story about the shadow you got 
that magazine. If you wanted Tarzan, you went to Argosy because they published the Tarzan stories and so right. on. So I, I think there, there was a, a wide variety and a lot of specialization, but what survived of Pulp Fiction and what the term is associated with most today, in part thanks to Quentin Tarantino, is a certain kind of uh, crime fiction that often has an edge of pessimism or cynicism mm-hmm. to it that has mm-hmm. corruption in high places. Uh, you know, there's the loner who's either a detective or himself a criminal. Uh, and is up against overwhelming uh, forces. Anyone who has power in the world of a pulp story is almost always a criminal, almost always evil. Uh, and even if the protagonist is a criminal, that's usually someone who's at least more sympathetic, a little more sympathetic. So that, that's what we think of as pulp fiction today, even though, as you say, if you go back 80 years, what was published in these classic pulp magazines like Argosy ran the gamut. Uh, but the crime stuff is what I liked best. Oh, okay. So that was going to be my next question is what, what drew you to, to these? Was it the covers or the titles or the, the edge and the crime or the It, it was, uh, I thought the ingenious plots were mm-hmm. a pleasure. You know, some yeah. of these were puzzle driven. So you were trying to solve a mystery. Many of them weren't actually whodunits. Many of them weren't detective stories as, as much as just, uh, a plot driven stories. But, you know, if you have a story about somebody who wakes up in the morning uh, in a hotel room bed, turns the light on, and there's a corpse in bed with him, <laughs> and the sounds of a police siren outside the window, and he goes on the run. Yeah. Uh, maybe part of the story is who killed the person, but what you really want to know is, will he get away from the cops? And so you have action stories, and you have uh, stories that have clever hooks, like Cornell Woolrich, who was the author of Rear Window, uh, came up with the most clever hooks. I remember one that was uh, a man uh, sees a hobo, and the hobo is run over by a train and uh, the man wants to shed his identity. So he takes the hobo's uh, clothing and whatever identification there is. I don't remember the details, but then it turns out that the dead man he took the identity of was being pursued by criminals. And so he's just <laughs> taken on for himself the uh, you know, the fate of this person. There are all sorts of things like that. Right. Oh, I love those plots. I love, and I love... Uh, <laughs> They're great, right? Yeah. And you know, it, just when it, it ratchets it up, and then just when you think you've seen every possible twist, they find another way to loop back on itself and twist again, and it's, uh, ab- it's, absolutely. it's a pleasure. Absolutely. There were writers... Uh, Warwick was one of them, Cornell Warwick, and Earl Stanley Gardner was another one who wrote oh. all the Perry Mason novels. Yeah. And the Cool and Lamb detective novels, which we have reprinted several of and, in fact, found an unpublished one and pr- published that as well called The Knife Slipped. His plots were always remarkably ingenious. Uh, he was endlessly clever, and it, they, were, they were twisty and complex, and you never really thought he would pull it all together at the end, and then he always did. So yeah. I, I have a lot of respect for a writer like that. You know, I mean, he also had entertaining dialogue and characters you want to see over and over, uh, but his plots were really quite clever. So I think it was the cleverness of the plots that hooked me originally as a young reader. But then over time, the cynicism is, is what got me. I, I think mm. when you get to your late adolescence, you're, you're 16, 18, 20, you're at, after adolescence, yes. you realize the world isn't the ideal place you wish it was. And this literature really uh, resonates at, at that point uh, yeah. where you realize bad things happen to good people. And sometimes it's arbitrary and sometimes it's cruelty, uh, but it happens. That's the true story of life. And these things became popular in the shadow of the Depression first, World War II second, mm. the camps, Hiroshima. This was the world that birthed noir fiction. And it's a lot of my 
personal past as well and my family's past. So reading a literature where people were cynical and had reason to be uh, was reassuring to me in a perverse way. It was reassuring to me because it, it told me I wasn't the only one who had these feelings. Yeah. And, and society is setting out this sort of example of here, here's what you need to have a nice, safe, comfortable life. And you, you get a job and you buy a house, you take on a mortgage and you, you have a wife and kids and a dog and you'll be very happy. And to a, an 18 year old, sometimes that just looks like a prison. And you just think there must be a different way to be a grown up. There must be a way to, to view it's the world true. in a and, different and... way. Yeah, at one point you might have thought I'll be a cowboy and ride the range. And in some sense, the modern, the more modern detective story is an updating of the cowboy legend. You know, the tough guy who rides solo and rides into a tough town and cleans it up and then goes off in, into the sunset to find his next assignment. The detective and the cowboy have a lot in common. So there was certainly a generation where Westerns were popular. They've more or less faded at this point, uh, but the detective story remains popular. Yeah. But then uh, getting back to your story, at some point you mm -hmm. set these aside. And, and my understanding is you studied other things in college. Well, it's interesting. I'm, you can ask how much I really set them aside. I was a literature major and I yeah. specialized in British romantic poetry uh, and some Victorian poetry and things of that sort. And, and, you know, you'd say, well, that's about as different as you can get. Well, is it really? You know, is yeah. the cynicism of the noir writers really all that different from the cynicism of a poem like Ozymandias, which is yeah. the single most cynical poem you can ever read? Right. Uh, if you read Thomas Hardy's poetry, uh, that's pure noir all the way through. Read Hap, you know, about uh, uh, someone dying just at the instant that you're thinking of them. Uh, if you read a, a poem like Porphyria's Lover by Robert Browning, uh, Browning writes from the point of view of a man who has just strangled a woman. Mm. And we don't know that's what he's done until late in the poem. And it ends with the line, uh, he, he's been sitting up all night with her corpse, and he's marveling at the end that God has not said a word. Mm. So where is his punishment, right? So that poem, could, were it a short story instead of a poem, could have appeared in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Uh, yeah. this impulse to explore the darker side of humanity goes back many generations before the Hammett's Chandlers and Canes of the world came around. So it wasn't that different. And it's one of the reasons that when I wrote my first uh, novel, which was for hard case crime called Little Girl Lost, it was about a detective named Blake, uh, having spent several years reading the, uh, the works of William Blake and John Keats. I named the character John Blake. <laughs> and uh, he's a former student at Columbia studying things of this sort, and he gets dragged into the, the real stuff of noir in, on the streets of New York City. It's, it, it, it was a tiny little tribute, but also hopefully uh, a reminder that the world of classic literature and, uh, and noir literature are not as separate as, as you might think. I mean, yeah. For heaven's sake, Philip Marlowe was named after Marlowe, and uh, oh, yeah. Christopher Spencer Marlowe was. was named after Spencer, <laughs> so there's, yeah. there's plenty of uh, connections. Yeah. Writers are not all that far from Sam Spade sometimes. That's true. <laughs> Did you ever write a paper in college that compared the two? Uh, you know, I don't remember doing that. That's a very interesting question. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't remember taking any courses that would have permitted that, although right. I had some professors who might have found it entertaining. Uh, I do remember taking uh, courses that included books that had a murder element to them. So, for instance... Nabokov's novel, Pale Fire, which yes. may be the single best book I've ever read, uh, 
is a murder. It's not a murder mystery, but it's a murder story. It's about a poet who's shot to death in his own driveway. And his neighbor, who's clinically insane, uh, steals his final work and annotates it. Uh, and the annotation itself contains something more like an adventure story, but with a certain amount of crime in it as well. Uh, so that's an example of a classic work of literature that has crime elements to it. And of course, Nabokov did that often. You know, Lolita is a crime story. Mm. But other than papers on things like Pale Fire, I, I don't I don't think I dragged that in. But my professors knew by the end, certainly they knew about my interest in it. And I was already writing short stories for magazines like Ellery Queen and mm. Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine. Uh, and I shared that with them. I, I didn't keep it secret. Not like uh, our author, Michael Crichton, who, when he was in Harvard Medical School, was so nervous that he'd get expelled if they ever found out that he also wrote uh, pop boilers, sexy crime-ridden <laughs> pop boilers on the side that he wrote them under a fake name, John Lang, and never allowed them to be reprinted, never put them out under his own name, although he did let us uh, republish two of them under the fake name as long as we swore we would keep his secret. Even though now he was a world-famous writer, uh, creator of Jurassic Park and Westworld and so many other things, and there's no chance that Harvard would have rescinded his degree uh, 30 years after he received it, but he still wanted to keep the secret. So as long as he was alive, we did keep it. Right. Well, let's talk about hard case crime because I'm just I'm sure. fascinated by it. I, I admire it. I, I find oh, it thanks. sort of inspiring. And I guess I have sort of a two part question. The first one is what made you take the leap and say these should be published again? And the second question is, what made you take the leap and say, I should be the one who's publishing these? <laughs> well, no one else seemed to want to do it. So yeah. Sometimes <laughs> if you want something in the world, you have to make it happen. It seems so obvious in retrospect. Well, it, one of those things that, that uh, seems obvious is that if you love something, hmm. really love it, there's a good chance you're not the only one. Right. Uh, but I wasn't even sure of that. You know, I, I knew I grew up reading these books and loved them very much. And I had a good friend named Max Phillips, who was a novelist and had worked with me on Juno, which was an Internet company I founded uh, back around 1994. And when Juno finally got merged out of our lives with a competitor and we were thinking about what to do next, he and I went out drinking at the uh, Algonquin, which is a good place for talking about books. Mm -hmm. And uh, we both grew up reading these books. We both loved them. And after enough alcohol had passed through our uh, lips, veins and elsewhere, I, I, I said to Max, why don't we publish a line of books like this? Because we wanted to write books like this, but we were born too late. You know, we weren't yeah. alive or, or of an age to write uh, in the 40s, 50s, even the 60s. So if we wanted to write books like this, we simply were out of time. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we yeah. were in the wrong period. But why in the world couldn't there be a new line like this with the beautiful painted covers and high velocity writing and, and compelling plot hooks and so on? Why not? Uh, and of course, there were a million reasons why not, you know, all sorts of reasons you don't start a book publishing <laughs> business in 20, uh, whenever it was, it was 2001 that we had the idea. We published our first books in 2004. It took us about three years to, uh, to find a publisher to partner with since we knew nothing about actually printing books, you know, paper yeah. and ink and binding right. and warehouses. And we didn't want to learn that. So we found a publisher called Dorchester Publishing that had uh, romance novels, westerns, uh, even some techno thrillers in a sort of Tom Clancy vein, horror, but they didn't have crime fiction. And so we yeah. came to them and said, you know, you do the printing, you do the distribution, we'll give you the books, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pick them and we'll put the covers on them and we'll make, uh, make everything easy for you. We'll hand you a disc and the disc will have everything you need. You just push a button, out they come. Yeah. 
And uh, to our astonishment, Dorchester said yes. Astonishment because we had tried 10 other publishers before who all said no. Um, right. But we were still encouraged, even when they said no, we were encouraged because every one of them, not without exception, every one of them, uh, looked at the covers that we had dummied up and the list of authors, and they, they, they got wistful and nostalgic, and editor after editor said, oh, man, this is great. I would love it if someone did this, and I would put it on my shelf, but I just don't think you're going to sell enough copies to make it a good business. Yeah. You know, they're not necessarily wrong. I mean, the truth is our typical book, when it's not written by Stephen King, doesn't sell all that many copies. We've been fortunate that Stephen King has written two books for us, and those have sold quite well. But other than that, even when we found an unpublished novel by James M. Cain, who was one of the big stars of the field, oh, that, that sold better than our typical book, but not in the same league as Stephen King. So it turns a profit. Every year we've made some money, but I could make more money at McDonald's pretty much flipping burgers. So <laughs> it's it's not a good use of time if you just measure uh, quality by dollars and cents. But fortunately, yeah. I don't. If I did, I would have been an econ major, not a romantic poetry major. Yeah. And so it gives me pleasure. And it's at least a self-sustaining business that, that carries on. Um, but when we tried pitching around town, we, we didn't find any takers until Dorchester, the late lamented Dorchester. They're not around anymore, uh, but they gave us our start. They got they got us started, and I'm forever grateful to them for that. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's where this began. A, conversation, a half-drunken conversation with Max Phillips, pitching it around town for three years, finding Dorchester. And then uh, when Stephen King found out what we were doing and said, I want to be part of this, I want to write a book for you, that, that really put us on the map. And uh, that, combined with a lot of publicity, knock on wood, uh, has kept us afloat. I know Stephen King has. I've read about his own his own start with genre magazines and writing. Uh, yeah. I guess you know, writing for pay, basically. And I'm sure he's yep. was very nostalgic for the covers and just for the whole style and the pace and everything. Was it? Do you remember why he said that he wanted to be a part of it? Was it to have a a book of his in a cover like that? I think that was certainly part of it. I approached him, even though I didn't know him, didn't even know how to approach him, but I found the name of his accountant and the accountant happened to be a few blocks away from where I worked. So I thought, why, why not? One day I came in, I had a package, I put it together with some samples of the covers, a description of what we were doing, a letter explaining that I knew Stephen King loved the same kinds of books we did because he'd written essays about it saying that. And he, he wrote a book called The Dark Half, which was all about a, uh, a literary writer who writes pulp crime novels under a, a dark pseudonym that then comes to life and starts killing people. And that pseudonym was George Stark, which was named after Richard Stark, which mm. was the pseudonym of one of our authors, Donald Westlake. So yeah. I, I just, I knew this was the kind of material <laughs> he would enjoy, right. even though I didn't know him. And I sent the, pa I, I handed the package to the accountant, hoped that he would send it on, figured he probably wouldn't. And then I didn't hear anything for about, uh, I don't know, several months. But the only request I made in that was, could you help us get some readers to give these books a try? Uh, I didn't have the audacity to suggest that he would write a book for us. <laughs> That's a preposterous idea. Right. And, and, and so instead, I, I said, look, I, you grew up reading Daykeen, for example, and nobody reads Daykeen today. And we'd like to bring back a book by Daykeen. But if all the cover says is Daykeen, nobody will know what that means. And Maybe 10 people will pick it up. But if on the front cover somewhere else it says, these guys know pulp, or I yeah. like what these guys are doing, Stephen King, it might spur 
right. thousands of people who would never otherwise pick up Daykeen to pick it up. And this is, this is a chance to bring these authors that you and we love back to readers. Uh, would you consider doing that? And then when I finally heard from his agent, a random phone call, middle of the day, uh, somebody saying, I'm Stephen King's agent. Steve asked me to call you uh, to let you know he does not want to write you a blurb. And then there was a pause. That's, that's the, the man, bad news. The man you had a milk a moment. <laughs> uh, and and I, I said, well, thank you for letting me know. That's very kind of you. You did that. Because, he said, as if I hadn't continued at all, uh, because he would like to write you a book instead. And, of course, I was, I was floored and very grateful, and, and it turned out, it, it turned out terrifically. I do think having having a cover of our style was part of the reason, but he's also a very decent, nice person who yeah. likes helping uh, startups in areas where you know he, he feels a certain attachment, and and he just wanted to help us out, and and that was a, a kindness beyond measure. And he just loves fiction. That's what I love about him. He does. It's, he does. He's a, he's a born storyteller. Yeah. And can't, you know, compulsive storyteller in the best way, in the Scheherazade way, even if, you know, there's not a sword over his head compelling him. Uh, but there's something inside him that compels him. And the stories just flow and they keep coming. And and they're a pleasure. So I, I you know, I was a reader of his books long before I ever knew him. And and uh, and and love them as as the rest of the world does. I mean, there there are storytellers who are just irresistible, and you'll follow them anywhere. Lawrence Block is an example, although less well known than Stephen King. He's written a hundred books, and there's not one of them that I I wouldn't gladly read, even though some are in areas uh, he he flirted with New Age material at one point in the eighties. I have zero interest in New Age material, but if it's by Lawrence Block, I know it's going to be a good story, well told. There are just writers like that, and uh, Stephen King is one. Uh, and that is the attribute we look for in the books we publish, both the reissues, half of our line is reissues of old material that's mm. been forgotten and we feel doesn't deserve to be. And then the other half is, is current writers working today. Uh, and we look for that sort of irresistible voice that uh, catches you on page one and you can't put, put the book down unfinished. And you know it when you, when you find it, even if you can't quite describe it, uh, when you start reading a book and you want to turn that next page, you know, we get a thousand submissions a year, which I'm sure isn't that many compared to a major publisher, but a thousand submissions a year is two or three novels every single day. Uh, I can't read two or three novels a day, even if I want yeah. to, it's impossible. <laughs> I can't read a thousand books a year. And so how do we deal with these submissions? Well, very quickly, you, know, you read one page, two pages, three pages, and you either do or don't want to continue. Yeah. And the ones that are truly compelling and great are the ones that you you don't stop reading, even though you have other things you need to do. There's a book to proofread. There's a piece of cover art to assign. There are a million things to do, but you're on page five and then you're on page 10 and damn it, you're going to keep reading. Yeah. That's the, the, the one we buy. Um, and you'd be surprised out of a thousand books. Okay, fine. 500 of them aren't even literate. That's easy. But then of the remaining 500, they're, they're fine. They're perfectly good books, perfectly well-written, but they're not compelling. And then there's the one a year, two a year that really are. Yeah. And that's how we fill out the line. And then there are you know, writers like Block and Ed McBain who, who just, no matter what they write, you're going to love reading it. So I know there are some popular formulas for fast-paced mm -hmm. fiction out there. Do you use formulas in any way, either when you're writing or editing? And what I'm talking about for people who might not be familiar, the, um, you know, by in the first thousand words, this should happen. And 
you know, a, a quarter of the way through the novel, you should have a twist or, you know, anything like right. that. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't like that sort of thing. It tends to make books the same as each other rather than fresh and novel and surprising. Yeah. So I don't encourage writers to do it. Uh, I will say that I, I've joked about this, but it's not entirely a joke that a hard case crime novel is, is one that has a, a crime on, you know, has a dead body on page one, has a man on the run by page two, has a sex scene by page three. Uh, and if you don't have those things within the first three pages, you're doing something wrong. That's mostly a joke, but there is some truth to it. Our books are not the sort that have a hundred page buildup before something happens. Now, of course, having published a hundred plus books, I can point to one that, that is an exception. Uh, we actually won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best Paperback of the Year for a book by Dominic Stansberry called The Confession. It was in our first year. And The Confession, as wonderful a book as it is, is atypical for hard case crime because the first 150 pages of the book are all built up. And the crime, the murder happens after, more or less at the halfway point of the book. That's very much not the kind of book we normally publish, but he wrote it brilliantly and, and it won an award and, that, and it deserved it. Uh, but overwhelmingly, our books are the sort that you don't have to read dozens of pages before you get to the good stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a formula, but speed, concision, velocity, I guess that goes with speed. So therefore, my mentioning both is an example of <laughs> lack of concision. But uh, that, those, those are attributes we like, but, but not a formula. I will say that when I've written my own books as a uh, sort of OCD habit, I pay attention to what's happening at the one-third, two-third, and halfway points. Hmm. And I want certain uh, types of plot events, uh, certain turns or not twists exactly, but certain developments that feel like major turning points to happen at the one-third, one-half, and two-thirds marks. Yeah. Why is that? No reason at all. I cannot explain it. Uh, in a movie, you talk about acts. Right. You talk about a three-act script, uh, and at the end of each act, which is roughly one-third, two-thirds into the movie, you want there to be something that feels like the end of a chapter. You know, there, There's a major development. Well, I think that is a good practice in storytelling. You, you want to give readers the satisfaction of feeling progress is being made towards the goal. It makes the ending feel more satisfying when it comes. It's a little bit like the rules for writing a, a good piece of music. And I there was are a million just ways to say, write yeah, it reminds yeah, me of music. It's like you want to write a concerto, you need to have movements, you know? Yeah. So I think that's part You're of it. dealing with the expectations of the listener or the reader. You know, they're going to feel it. They want it to resolve in a certain way or they, you know, it's, it's like a, yes, exactly. a chord progression, you that's know, exactly. when there's, um, you know, the, you're setting up an expectation to either, uh, resolve it or to defeat the expectation in some way. Absolutely. But, and, and, and another example is, uh, chapters. You, why do you break a book into chapters? It yeah. gives people a stopping point, a resting point, a feeling of progress. Uh, so I, I like books that have chapters and use them intelligently. On the other hand, then you have books that are all told in one chapter. So for instance, the second book that Stephen King wrote for us called Joyland, which is one of the best we ever published. And it's a terrific book. Uh, Joyland has zero chapters or one chapter. The whole thing is told in one chapter. Now the chapter is broken up into sections and the sections are separated with a little dingbat, uh, the shape of a heart between two sections, uh, but they're not chapters. Uh, because if you read a conventional book, you will often find a line break in the middle of the chapter. And that doesn't mean it's a new chapter. It's just a change of point of view or uh, a day has passed or something like that. Uh, so it's a book told in one long chapter, effectively, and it works beautifully. Now, of course, it's Stephen King, so he's, he's an abnormally gifted storyteller, but 
he pulled it off. And we, I can point to any number of other examples that break the rules. So I, I'm always happy uh, to see somebody play with the rules, break the rules. We're about to do a book, a first novel called Charles Gate Confidential by a film critic named Scott Vondoviak. He's published several books of film criticism, but he's never published a novel. It's fantastic. It's an absolutely terrific first novel, terrific novel period, which fictionalizes the real world and still unsolved art heist at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Mm. Uh, that's been in the news. I think the NPR ran a story about how the reward, the $10 million reward that you could get if you found the dozen missing priceless works of art that were stolen decades ago, uh, went down to $5 million because it's been so long and no one's claimed the rewards. So now it's only $5 million. Mm. You would think it might go the other direction. Yeah, right. If they offer more money, <laughs> they'll get the art back. But in any event, if you go to the Gardner Museum today, literally on the walls, you'll see empty frames where the pictures were cut out. Right. They still have the empty frames on the walls. So what uh, Charles Gate Confidential does is it reimagines the heist as if it had happened in the 1940s, not the 1990s. Okay, that's the first change. Uh, it tells the story of the heist in 1946. Then it imagines that the art got hidden somewhere and the, the, the crooks all got killed or captured. 40 years later, now it's 1986, the last surviving criminal involved in the case gets out of jail. He's been serving time for 40 years. He gets out of jail. He goes to where the art was hidden, which was a ritzy hotel in 1946, but it isn't that anymore. Now the building has been sold to Emerson University as a dormitory. Hmm. So he can't even get in because he's not a college student. He's now an old ex-con, and he has to team up with some college students that he strong arms into helping him try to find the art. I won't give away what happens in that part of a plot thread, but the art is still undiscovered, unlocated uh, at the end of that uh, plot thread. And then 25 years later, actually 28 years later in 2014, the kids, the college kids who helped this criminal or tried to help him, it all ends terribly, uh, come back to, uh, um, to Boston for their 25th college reunion. Only now the building, the Charles Gate, which, by the way, is a real building in, in, uh, in Boston. Now this building is not a college dorm anymore. Now it's a luxury condos and dead bodies start turning up in the luxury mm. condos because someone is still hunting for the art. Yeah. Now, what is interesting about this in terms of the storytelling and the pacing, the natural way to tell it is 100 pages about 1946 and that story. Now it's 1986, 100 pages of that. That's not how he did it. What he does is one chapter in 46. Now we jump to 86. Mm. Now we go to 2014. Then it's back to 846, 86, 2014. So it's braided like a challah. Yeah. And you, the, but the brilliant thing that he does is even though you know, you, you certainly have some idea of what must have happened at the end of the 46 storyline because you're reading the 86 storyline. So for instance, you know the art didn't get discovered, right? It, it, right, right. Nevertheless, you have enormous suspense and he manages to make the end of each chapter sort of a cliffhanger in spite of the fact that you're reading about two time periods later. Plus he has interesting interwoven bits where, for example, one of the crooks in 46 meets and gets helped by a man who turns out to be the grandfather of one of the college kids from the 86 section. It's, it's just a brilliantly put together book. Now what happens at the one third mark of this book? Damned if I know. Yeah. Uh, and all those rules go out the window because he's come up with a unique structure that makes this book an irresistible read. So that, that, that's an example. Well, that's that's what I love. I love that the sense that the authors are having fun 
And yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, I that, lo- that, that's the most important thing. As, it's communicable. It's like a disease. Yeah, you know, the is. fun they have becomes the fun you have. And as much as I love reading, you know, Ulysses or something, it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to not think of poor Joyce agonizing over each over sentence. every word. Yeah. His thick, thick glasses. <laughs> you know, and, and I say that as someone with thick glasses myself, you know, it, but it is true of the best books of well, maybe not all the best books of this sort. But when you read uh, Kurt Vonnegut, you definitely have a sense that he was yeah. enjoying himself. I mean, he, he was right. excoriating the human race, but. He, he was enjoying putting words on a page, uh, Pale Fire. You know Nabokov was having fun when he wrote that book. It's just so suffused with, with delight and, and fun. I think the best books, even in the literary world, communicate that the author's uh, pleasure. Even if it's fun isn't quite the word in right. some cases. The, the author's pleasure. Joyce is an exception. I, I don't think Joyce got a lot of pleasure page by page. <laughs> but, uh, but you kind of get the feeling Dickens did, had a lot of fun with it. So yeah. I, I don't know. I think the best writers do convey their delight at employing their craft yeah and and it, certainly on your list of the hard case crime books the titles are so fun um <laughs> i love we talked about these a little bit last night too but i love uh fade to blonde and somebody yeah, owes, that was my partner's work <laughs> somebody owes me money I love that. Somebody <laughs> owes me money. You almost have to say it in a Brooklyn accent. Otherwise, it doesn't work. No, you're, you're right. Uh, we, we have uh, one called Say It With Bullets. <laughs> yeah, That's a good one. Uh, yeah. The Corpse Wore Pasties. That was another one. <laughs> so not all of our books have uh, that sort of incendiary pulp title. There, yeah. there are some famous ones that we didn't publish. I think probably my favorite is uh, James Hadley Chase's book, Kiss My Fist. <laughs> that's just great that's a great title i don't even know what the book's about i have it on yeah. my shelf never read it probably not very good but you know kiss my fist that's pretty good um yeah. i the jury the legendary first mike hammer novel by uh, mickey Spillane, which yeah. sold 100 million copies or whatever yeah, it was that's a great um, title so the great title but then you have a book like uh fright by cornell warwick the title is fright that's mm. it that's the title it's an apt description for the book, which is about somebody who's consumed with fear and makes bad life decisions as a consequence and all the things that, that, that happened to that person and the the other people in the person's life. Uh, Fright is not a great title. It's certainly not uh, a title that in and of itself will send you to the counter saying, I've got to buy this book because it's called Fright. Uh, But that works too. So we, we have a mix, a mix of titles, sort of, uh, uh, the the kind of uh, cynical title that suggests Bogart with a cigarette dangling from yeah. one corner of his lips, uh, <laughs> the comical titles. We we have we have a, a a nice mix. But I I'm glad I'm glad you like those. Fade to Blonde is is a favorite of mine. That was actually uh, the <laughs> fake dummy cover that Max Phillips came up with when oh, we were really? first discussing the line. Yeah, he he um he had to make a dummy cover, so we stole some art from an old paperback. And he mocked up a logo and a title treatment and so on, but he had to have a title yeah. and an author name. So he just out of the blue, he made a fade to blonde <laughs> by Forrest DeVoe Jr., who didn't exist. He just made it up. And then when we sold the line and we were ready to go, and of course he and I each wanted to write a book for the line. That was the whole point of it, you know, in, in, in the first place that yeah. he would get to write for a publisher like this. Uh, he said, you know, I wonder what a book called fade to blonde would be about. <laughs> well, clearly, since it's a play on Face of Black, it would have to be set in the movie industry. So now we're in California, so yeah. now you have your setting. And what, what would it mean? There's got to be a blonde in it. Okay, right. well, why, uh, you know, what, what's going on in this blonde's life? So uh, he started writing it. And this is a guy, Max wrote uh, several literary novels that he worked on 
um, and this gets to the fun point, he worked on those books for years. He might work on a single book for a decade, carefully uh, working on every sentence. And, um, and those books are wonderful. His, his first one was called Snake Bite Sonnet. He had one called The Artist's Wife about uh, 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 Alma Mahler, who married Gustav Mahler, among other, many other men. And uh, those books took a very long time to write. Fade to Blonde, he wrote, I think, in 60 days or something like that. And he told me I had the most fun writing it that I've ever had writing a book. Yeah. And of, of all the books, you know, it's, it's not the, uh, that it deserves success more than the other books, but it's still in print and still selling every year. And I don't know if that's true of the, uh, of, of the literary novels that he wrote, which also deserve to be out there, but I don't know if they are. Right. So yeah, some, sometimes working in the commercial world is, uh, a betrayal of your high artistic impulses. And sometimes <laughs> it's the way to get really good work out there in front of readers. So let's, uh, something we just touched on a little bit, but I wanted to uh -huh. dig into deeper is the, the way you've constructed this list of authors. So you have, uh, you have current authors like Stephen King and right. Madison Smart Bell and Krista Faust, who I love. Mm -hmm. And it's great that you oh, have a, a, a female author. Uh, uh -huh. And then you have sort of the old masters, maybe we'll call them. You have James M. Kane sure. and A.C. Doyle and, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, good old A.C. Doyle, right? We tried that. That was, that was we, we published a Sherlock Holmes novel, but we did it in pulp drag. And yeah. instead of describing the author as Arthur Conan Doyle, we just called him A.C. Doyle, author of The Lost World. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And then, and then you, but you also have some manuscripts that uh, were never published. That's true. And now, I'm, sometimes those were by people in those categories, and sometimes they were little-known authors. So, yeah, yeah we, we found an unpublished novel by James and Cain. Uh, he was a master and a, a giant of the field, but at the end of his life, when he was suffering from heart disease and he was working hard to produce his last novel, he did complete it, uh, but it it died with him. The, the mm. manuscript was lost, and uh, I spent nine years searching for it, and finally, wow. more or less by accident... Uh, was talking to an agent in Hollywood who represented my wife at the time. And I told him the story about how I'd been hunting for nine years for this lost manuscript by James M. Cain. And he said, you know, I inherited the files of an old Hollywood agent named uh, Swanson, H.N. Uh, Swanson, I believe. And uh, he used to represent Cain. Let me just check his files. And he turned around and opened a file and cabinet. And there was the manuscript of The Cocktail Waitress by James M. Cain that mm. I had been hunting for for nine years. Random coincidence. Wow. Uh, so that that's that is an example of an unpublished book, but by, by a, by a huge author, but there are exceptions. Uh, sorry. There are uh, examples of, of, uh, less well-known authors. So David Dodge, who wrote to catch a thief, which mm. became the Hitchcock movie, yep. uh, was reasonably well-known in the fifties is not remembered particularly today. And, uh, but he wrote a terrific book called plunder of the sun, which became a Glenn Ford movie, a little bit more of an Indiana Jones style adventure story than a, strict crime novel, but in any event, we reissued it, and his daughter, who was still alive at the time, said, you know, my dad had a last manuscript that he never published while he was alive called The Last Match. Would you take a look at it? And I read it, and it was it, it needed a little bit of editing, but it was uh, it was good, and it actually rem reminded me a lot of To Catch a Thief, and I thought that was that was fun. So we, we mm. published that, even though I don't think one person in a million alive today would, could tell you who David Dodge was. But the book was good, and it felt good to 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 bring it out. And there, so there there are lost 
books of that sort where the quality of the book is the real thing that uh, that attracts me to it, not because the author's name is so powerful that it's going to drive sales. Yeah. So I have one more uh, question, and then I have a surprise bonus question for you. Okay, great. So the question I wanted to ask is about uh, a lot of people, I think, would be hearing about this project and think, well, how do you bring out these books in 2018 without dealing with gender issues or racial stereotypes? Or Sure. Are you able to edit that or edit around it or find books that aren't too offensive? Or how do you deal with that editorially? <laughs> I think that should be our slogan. Our books aren't too offensive. Yeah. Or, or maybe it should be the opposite. Our books are very offensive. Maybe that would sell more copies. <laughs> the, the simple answer to it is 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 as follows: uh, to the extent that we're publishing a new book by a current living author, it's it's very simple. You know, they, there's no excuse yeah. for somebody living and writing today to write material that is uh, pointlessly uh, offensive or sexist or racist. That doesn't yeah. mean there can't be characters in the book who are sexist and racist. For heaven's sake, we're writing about murderers and so on. Uh, some of them are sexist and racist, and in their voice, any number of things can be said, and that's fine, uh, but you don't want to get the sense that the author is endorsing this uh, any more than the author is endorsing murder. Um, so that, that side of the line is easy. What's a little bit harder is the reissue side, where we're reprinting books that, mm. um, that right. were published in 1945 or 55 or 65 or sadly 75 or 85 and have – that sort of sexist or racist content. And there's a lot of it, and, and there's no hiding from that fact. Yeah. However, however, uh, if, if you have a collection of these books, and I have a rather large collection thanks to all those yard sales and, and uh, eBay purchases, if you have 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 of these books on your shelf and you go through them bit by bit and read them, what you'll find is that of the N thousand, there are probably N dozen that hold up very well mm. as uh, as really good reads that aren't uh, tainted by this sort of uh, this sort of problem. So if you read the Cool and Lamb books by Earl Stanley Gardner, I wouldn't want to reprint all 29 of those because, oh, for example, during World War II, he wrote a number of books uh, with Japanese characters who that were just the worst kind of World yeah. War II era Japanese stereotype. They were terrible. Uh, right. The books themselves weren't terrible, but those stereotypes were awful. But you know what? He has 29 books. It's very easy to pick one that doesn't have mm. any Japanese characters in it and doesn't have stereotypes in it. So I think as long as you're not trying to do something that is archival, where you're presenting the entire run, uh, you can just pick out the best of the 29, and that will be one that doesn't have uh, a racist depiction of uh, a, a servant at some rich person's mansion, for example, or in the case of the uh, uh, the World War II book I was talking about, uh, I think it was a judo instructor or something like that. So I, I think you just pick the ones that are still good reads. And by the way, that goes not just for things like sexism and racism, but just stale rucking. Hmm. Uh, the average book yeah. written in 1950, you can't read now. It's very dated and it's, it, it'll bore you and it'll be concerned with things that are not particularly interesting to you, the best of them, the best of these books holds up beautifully. And that's what we look for. So I read hundreds of these books and many of them I drop after page 10 or 20 because they're just not that good in one one dimension or another. But when I find one where by page 20, I'm I'm deeply engrossed and by page 100, I'm even more so. And I get to the last page and I say, that was a really satisfying read. That's the one we reprint. Hmm. Okay. Surprise bonus question. Are you <laughs> Surprise ready? Surprise bonus question. 
Yes. <laughs> it's late at night. This is a little bit long. I'll warn you in advance. Okay. It's late at night. You're in your office, alone except for a scruffy beam of moonlight and a half-empty bottle of Johnny Walker Red. Just Excellent. as you start contemplating the mysteries of the goddamn universe, the door swings open, and a man too long for his suit charges in. He's holding, <laughs> he's holding three briefcases in one hand. Except for the briefcases, he looks like a cross between a common thug and a mortician, the kind of guy Ooh. that a savvy funeral director hires to watch the room in case the widows start getting out of hand. Uh-huh. You, you could have knocked you say as he lines up the briefcases on your desk. That's what the door's for. You could have locked it, he says. He busies himself with the middle briefcase, adjusting it a half centimeter to make sure it's perfectly parallel to the others. Then he clears his throat. It sounds like rats being tossed into a box. First rule, he begins. First rule is I make the rules here, you say. First rule, he says again, narrowing his eyes, is you don't ask me who I work for, or how I got these, or why we chose you. That's three rules, you say. Where I come from, we call that a policy. Exactly, he says. A strict, don't ask, don't tell policy. I can live without the ask, you say. But unless you have eyes on your ass that want a close-up view of the souls I just had installed on these loafers, you'd better rethink the telling part. Okay, here's where we... Here's a, all that was sort of a preamble. Here's where we get to the that's, question. That's great stuff. Great stuff. <laughs> he stares at you as if you've just confirmed a hundred rumors he spent weeks tracking down. And then he lays out the wildest story you've heard since your wife's divorce lawyer pled her case to the court. It seems he works for his boss, an eccentric billionaire who lives high in Manhattan who has spent decades pursuing a bizarre passion to root out mm. famous people who harbor a secret love of crime fiction. Along the way, he's learned of three 20th century icons who not only loved hard-boiled crime novels, but even took a shot at writing one themselves. At great expense, the billionaire has managed to acquire the rights to all three manuscripts, and he wants your opinion of whether they're any good. He's giving you the chance to read and possibly publish one of the three. He points at each briefcase in turn. This one is by President Richard Nixon, he says. This one is by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. And this one is by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Which oh do you my. choose? Well, Nixon certainly had the uh, closest connection to criminals, so yeah. my guess is that he would write from what he knew. <laughs> but we've already published a book by uh, Howard Hunt. Howard Hunt, now, I saw that. E. Yeah. Howard Hunt. So E. Howard Hunt uh, was a spy novelist and a crime novelist before yeah. he became a Watergate conspirator and burglar, or, or hirer of burglars, I don't remember the details, but E. Howard Hunt was actually not only a writer of pop boilers and paperback crime novels, uh, but a good one. Yeah. And that was what astonished me when I picked up some of his work. Oh, it wasn't all good, but the best of his work was really up there with the, the solid, well, maybe not the A-plus writers, but the solid A writers. I looked him up. He wrote 74 novels. Incredible. Yeah, some of them after Watergate, you know, and, yeah. but somewhere along the way, he decided he was a character in one of his own books and he went wrong. So and I, I we found, found your, book oh, of his. Just, just to uh, Go ahead. just to praise you for this, I, I yeah. enjoyed your description of the book of 
what goes on behind closed doors at a Washington, D.C. hotel, which I thought was a very subtle. Yeah, uh... But that, that's what it's actually about. You know, he wrote a book about uh, crimes committed at a Washington, D.C. hotel. You can't make this stuff up. And it was called House Dick. Yeah. Uh, about a house detective. But uh, but, you know, he was right. he was part of Dick Nixon's crew. So it, it, you can't get better. The way we made it better was to quote Richard Nixon mm. about Howard Hunt as a blurb on the book. So I think in some sense we've already covered uh, covered oh. Nixon, uh, even oh. though I'm sure of the three he would he would be in the best position right now. Queen Elizabeth, had, yeah. he, he does have the, he did I should <laughs> have the darkness. Queen Elizabeth, um, I wouldn't be surprised at all if she were a fan of crime fiction, but it seems likely to me that it would be in the British school, and that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be the Agatha Christie cozy school. For one thing, Agatha Christie herself wrote some pretty dark novels, the darkest of them being, and then there were none. Yeah. So it's possible that she has uh, she has a dark novel in her, but I'm going to bet, just from what little I know about the British royal family, uh, that even if it were dark, it, it would be a kind of uh, Romana Clay about skullduggery in in, uh, <laughs> in the palace. And, uh, and that's not really our kind of our, our kind of thing. I'm not to say it wouldn't be a good book, but not our kind of thing. Now, that gets us to the Dalai Lama. Uh, yeah. The Dalai Lama is an interesting fellow. I, yeah. I, uh, I can't claim close acquaintanceship, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a couple of surprises up those sleeves of his. So yeah. I, I'm going to say... I go with the Dalai Lama. Yeah. I, I would be fascinated to find out what was uh, what was coming out of his Underwood typewriter when he pounded away at it at midnight with his uh, Johnny Walker red. <laughs> that that picture is so bizarre that uh, I, I I would just have to I would just have to read it. That... Plus, he probably wouldn't demand a very high advance. Yeah. <laughs> now that. Uh... I do think his would be the most interesting to see what he came up with, because you wonder... I'd be fascinated. You know, would he just stick to a kind of um, a private eye kind of setting, or would he make it a little more spiritual, and and maybe the the plot of the mystery would turn on um, enlightenment or or something like that? Entirely possible. You know, if you think about a writer like Paul Auster, Mm -hmm. uh, who brings a kind of metaphysical uh, mystery to the writing of crime novels, not that he's written crime novels recently, he's, he's moved on to more uh, literary type works, but at the yeah. start of his career, he wrote the New York trilogy, which was very much a uh, take yep. on noir crime fiction, but he also wrote uh, books like Leviathan and the Music of Chance, which very much are a brilliant literary writer's take on the sort of crime novels that, that, that we do. And he actually did write a pseudonymous uh, paperback crime novel under the name Paul Benjamin, uh, which was a baseball mystery, a straight, yes. flat-out baseball mystery. Yeah. So Paul Auster is someone who I think uh, would appreciate the work of the Dalai Lama and the, the kinds of <laughs> ideas there, uh, and who has turned his talent to writing crime novels from time to time. So uh, I, I would, of course, gladly see a manuscript from Paul Auster someday. I don't expect that to happen. But uh, the Dalai Lama, you know, I, 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 I could see that uh, being in the same general vein. That, that would be my guess for what it's worth. Now, I would guess, though, that the uh, anything like that written by Queen Elizabeth, I think, would be a huge seller because... Oh, I bet you're right. I bet you're right. So, I mean, if I actually yeah. were offered that, I, I, it, it almost <laughs> certainly would outsell the Dalai Lama, in fact. So, you know, you're, you're absolutely right, of course. I, I think Queen Elizabeth would be, a, would be a wonderful choice. Plus, she's alive, so she can sign copies. <laughs> well, Dalai Lama is, too. But Nixon, it's, it's hard to get signatures out of Nixon. Yeah. She's probably got some paintings too that she could just donate for the cover. She's uh, 
You know, she's probably got yes, some Yes, but how many there. of them have underdressed young women <laughs> and uh, men with fedoras and guns? That seems right. unlikely, but, but you never know. <laughs> okay, well, Charles Ardai, good luck with Hard Case Crime. I uh, I hope Thank my uh, affection for it has come through here, and I hope my oh, readers very, very all uh, run out and, and check out the catalog. These are perfect books for as we head into summer here they're perfect for the beach or the airplane or those lazy summer evenings out on the porch uh thank you for joining me today on the history of literature thank you so much it was a real pleasure okay there we go wasn't that great my thanks to charles ardive for stopping by you can check out the Hard Case Crime series online or wherever you like to buy your books. Ask for them by name. Excuse me, good sir, do you have the knife slipped? Or turn on the heat? <laughs> That's a fun conversation starter with the book clerk. We'll stick to our genre run with an episode on Kurt Vonnegut coming up soon, including his classic short story, Harrison Bergeron. That's with our old friend Mike Palindrome. So tell all your friends to subscribe to the History of Literature podcast on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, or Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at the Jack Wilson. We're like the that guy in the office down the hall. Cynical, burned out, a little tired of life. But in the end, we're always here to help. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>